Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Steph from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, we're handing things over to Heinemann fellow Brian Melton. Brian currently teaches English and creative writing in Illinois and oversees a slam poetry team. He believes in the power of conversation and self-reflection and infuses these values in his practice as an educator and leader. Here's Brian with more on his project. Hello, Heinemann Podcast listeners. My name is Brian Melton, part of the third cohort of Heinemann Fellows. And before we get this podcast going, I thought I would give you a little context into the conversations we're about to have. As I prepared for my upcoming year this past summer, I took a look at some of the schedules of my students and began to notice an alarming pattern. Student after student of mine were missing something that I always believed to be an essential to the life of a well-rounded academic. I saw dozens of kids taking AP classes, various history, math classes, and of course, English, but what was missing from far too many of my students' schedules was a fine arts class of any kind. Now, this schedule, what I've deemed to be the creative desert, is what nearly 70% of my students' schedules looked like. Eight-hour days, stripped of creativity, devoid of any place where a young man or woman can share his or her voice and spirit with the world around them. I noticed that seniors in my creative writing classes would always write reflections at the end of the year, effusive statements thanking me for helping remind them that they loved the act of writing. And then I'd go along and pat myself on the back for a job well done. But I started thinking, man, if I'm only teaching creativity in my senior level writing class, I'm robbing the rest of my students of three years of their high school career as creative individuals. And for those 70% without another outlet, I'm just another class in a grueling day. And I wanted to be an oasis and not another sand dune. So I decided to pose a question. In what ways might a shift away from the whole class novel to a focus on music, art, poetry, and storytelling in the ELA classroom, how would that enable student self-expression and help them develop critical inquiry into the work of others, and ultimately the work that we're trying to do in the English class. Now, I think I know a couple of people that can help me find that solution here today. We're going to be speaking with Daniel Wallace, Senior Program Manager of Lincoln Center Education in New York, who was instrumental in changing the way that I think about art and creativity in the classroom, and a young woman named Ashita Patel. She's one of my sophomore honor students who has been part of my research group this year. In this podcast, We're going to explore the role creativity plays in the classroom and how we as educators can hopefully shift our curriculum to become more of an oasis in this creative desert. I'm on the phone with uh, Dan Wallace, and he is the Senior Program Manager at Lincoln Center Education all the way from New York. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. I thought we would start, again, just with a general introduction. Uh, Let us know your role at Lincoln Center, sort of the work that you do, and maybe a little bit of your background, just so we can uh, get uh, familiar. Absolutely. So 
As you said, I'm Senior Program Manager at Lincoln Center Education. What I do is manage a portfolio of schools. If you've ever heard the term teaching artist, that came from Lincoln Center Education. Our work is based on the philosophy of Maxine Green, who for several decades was the philosopher in residence here. And what we try to do is basically start with the work of art at the center of a unit of study. And we've trained a number of teaching artists to partner with classroom teachers across ages and disciplines to prepare students to see a work of art live and then to reflect on those experiences. Really where this came from was the idea that a school field trip to a place like Lincoln Center to see a piece of dance, music, theater, or visual art was not sufficiently robust and that if professional artists could be trained to partner with teachers to really help students through art making, reflection, exploration of context, and a series of questioning and choice making to prepare them to see live works of art and then reflect on that experience, that that could yield a much more enriching and robust program for students. So LCE has been around for about 40, 45 years doing that work. And what I do is oversee what's called the focus schools, which is some of our more intensive partnerships here. So we try to do whole school partnerships where we're doing multiple units of study across multiple grades and multiple content areas with students throughout the year. My personal background, I was a high school English teacher here in New York for a number of years, including at one of our focus schools. And that's kind of how I became aware of the philosophy of Maxine Green, how I became aware of LCE's practice of aesthetic education, and then eventually how I transitioned over into managing a range of these school programs rather than kind of shepherding my own. You dropped a, a term in there, the aesthetic education. As an English teacher, sort of can you provide a little context to maybe that term? Absolutely. So that was coined by Maxine Green, who I mentioned a minute ago. Basically, she she discusses aesthetics as the opposite of anesthesia, <laughs> right? So she thinks about aesthetics as, as those elements that can serve as the opposite of that, which is to say those things that can wake us up. So aesthetic education is a teaching practice based on really the, the cycle that I described a minute ago where we're interested in helping students do activities before receiving information, explore areas of, of curiosity and wonder in ways that wake them up and engage them in exploring works of art that prepares them to see the work live and then to move into a period of reflection. So that philosophy is is straight out of Maxine Green, which builds heavily on John Dewey. The ideas being that a, an interaction with or a transaction between a person and a work of art is a profoundly meaningful experience akin to an interaction with another person. So we try to encourage students to bring their whole selves to that experience. So rather than something like um, giving a bunch of context about artists or a particular work of art and showing the work of art and then have students kind of replicate the piece, we like to have students pursue choices along some key ideas from the work of art before they ever see it, such that by the time they're viewing the work of art, they've made choices of their own and they're prepared to have a fuller conversation about the choices that the artist made. And that leads them toward the realm of making meaning. Right. And I think that that's, that's something that, as uh, you know, as being an English teacher, that, that making meaning from the art, whether it's the text or a piece of art or a piece of poetry, that often seems to be the most difficult aspect of literary analysis. Absolutely. I think our students, 
students are, are a lot more comfortable repeating to us things that we've said to them. Mm-hmm. And the idea that I can't know what experiences you've had in your lifetime that you're making connections between the work of art that you're encountering. I can't possibly control or tell you how to respond to something as complex as that viewing, but that I might be able to help you work through a process that allows you to make meaning out of that encounter and that your meaning would be different from the meaning that I brought to the same piece. I think in in that conversation, you know, perhaps the process can be replicated, but it's a it's a difficult one for students to do. And how might art help us maybe find more entry points into a piece of literature? I know that's a that's a big question, but it's one that I've grappled with as an educator for a number of years now. Sure, sure. Um, certainly, literature itself is an art form, right? So it's typically a lower bar to clear to make connections between works of other disciplines, you know, dance, music, theater, visual art, or otherwise with literature, just because we're dealing with different art forms themselves. And English teachers tend to be fairly comfortable teaching to works of art. But certainly, kind of the end game, the big goal of liberal arts education, or or certainly the, the ELA portion of standards is that students would be able to articulate and support claims and that they would be able to anticipate counterclaims. And that is very much meaning-making. And I think when we're talking about works of art, there are an incredible number of parallels between the making and the viewing, right? The, The listening and the speaking, the reading and the writing. And I think that if we're asking students, particularly in the English classroom, to respond to works of art, as we do when we ask them to respond to pieces of literature, we do them a disservice if they have no idea what it's like to make creative choices themselves. You're being asked to analyze and think deeply about another person's choices and the effects that those choices have on meaning when you haven't made your own, when you haven't thought about how might my choices lead a viewer or a reader through an experience themselves. So I think that the place of, of art is all throughout the English classroom. And I think that the depth of thinking when it comes to both producing and responding to works of art can be a a bit complicated to try to disentangle just because the process of making and the process of viewing are so connected. And I think that's really where our work lies is that part of viewing and making is that they're in conversation one with the other. Amazing. Yeah, I part of the work that I'm doing with Heinemann Fellows has to do with that specific connection between the creating of art and then the interpretation. And I find that often my students, as they are sitting in the classroom, have not had a ton of experience making art that also maybe contains meaning for them. And part of the the process of coming to my conclusion of my, my question with the Heinemann Fellowship is that 69% of my students in my fourth period class this year do not have a fine arts class on their schedule. So they're going through an eight-hour day, an eight-hour day that I have termed the creative desert, in which they're going from class to class to class. They're just ingesting, ingesting content, ingesting content, then regurgitating it on a test or, or for their teacher in some sort of form one way or the other, and then they just move on to the next day. And some of the students I've been working with have said that this is, you know, the schedule's 
they call their class days grueling and boring. And I think that that's the, the antithesis of what we would want as teachers. And so have you, I, I know that a lot of the schools that you probably work with are, you know, embracing the arts, but how can we possibly make a shift to where we embrace art as a means towards what we want our students to do after they get out of high school? It's a difficult question. I almost think about, I wonder if if we teach in wrongheaded ways because we are taught in wrongheaded ways in some ways. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like the group whose members were hazed in order to be part of the group <laughs> yeah. believe that they need to haze the next generation to be right. part of the group. And I wonder if it, it, it kind of continues to ramp up one cycle after another. Yeah, school is boring. I think that in some ways what that's really about is control. I think that a lot of mandates and a lot of very set curricula is really about teaching compliance. You know, I think that adults, for whatever reason, I think adults really like to to control what teenagers are thinking about or, or pretend like we can control what teenagers are thinking about. Creative expression is so much to do with the formation of an identity, personal engagement and investment in your own learning. What a student learns as they go through adolescence is more complex than we can possibly assess for. But I think one thing that our data probably tells us is that they learn to not be very creative and they learn to kind of protect themselves and not be too curious or ask too strange of questions. And I think that's the opposite, kind of like you said, of what we want to be really teaching our students. I think the control element comes from a lot of factors, one of which I've experienced personally. You know, I, I'm sure you know this as a teacher, but it's, it's a complicated thing to ask a question to which you don't know the answer. And a, a student has to fill in that space and meet you there, and they can respond in a surprising way. And I think that viewing works of art and creating works of art allow people to bring themselves into their learning process in a way that can be exactly the opposite of boring, but we don't know what directions that will lead, you know, in some ways. So I think it, it ends up just being easier and more convenient for district schools, teachers, whoever, to really try to set forth on a very regimented, structured path from one grade to the next, and in the process, really teach our students that the range of human experiences and the aesthetic appreciation of music or theater or visual art is something that they can enjoy and get curious about on their own time. And, you know, they do. They do, but it, it's not as deeply connected with their with their formal learning as I think it really should be. Yeah, I have a, a, a young lady I've been working with this year. And we sat down at the beginning of the year when I started this whole Heinemann Fellowship research, and I talked with her about it, and she couldn't see the connection between creativity and what she was doing in school. She wrote poetry and things of that nature outside of school. And she was always really, she considered herself to be an artistic person. And she said, what, what am I going to use this creativity for in school? And here's a young lady who, who writes beautiful poetry. And I have talked her into joining my slam team and we've been working together a lot, but that initial conversation just opened my eyes so much. She said, if I want to be a doctor, why do I need to be creative? Oh, my goodness. And we've broken something there, you know? Absolutely. And I said, well, I said, Rita, why, why, how do you think that we're going to move beyond 
and cure the incurable thing? How are we going to make the next progression if we aren't creative? And right. we've somehow more creative than Jonas Salk. Right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We've uh, we've we've strained that out of some of our students, and it's it is disappointing. So I was going to say, what would you say then to a teacher that does feel this this outside pressure through growth and through evaluations to teach towards it or to a district standard to teach towards a district text when maybe in their heart they know that they should be allowing their students more creative choice but don't find the time for it yeah it's it's a difficult question in some ways and i think every teacher in some ways has to make their own choices depending on who their students are I've been in a situation myself where I have second-year seniors who are kind of on their last shot and trying to pass a test to get the opportunity to go to college. I think in some rare circumstances like that, (laughs) students have had such an unfair education for such a long time that it can be a teacher's best option to try to help them get through some gate, some formal gate. Um, But I think... Overwhelmingly, the majority of classrooms aren't in that situation. And I, I really believe that many teachers don't feel like they have the time when the truth is I don't think they have the I don't think they have the time to not get involved in creativity and exploration of works of art. And what I mean by that is I think increasingly even in the strictest standards, teacher evaluation, student assessment practices, students have to be incredibly creative and be able to think out of the box on demand. I think that teachers feel like they can control what students are learning when they they teach to a test, but increasingly the tests themselves are asking for students to be creative and to think critically on the spot. I think you said you teach an, an AP class. Is that AP language or AP lit? Oh, I teach, I don't teach an AP class. I do teach uh, sophomore honors, um, which is oh, okay. a, which is AP, okay. AP track. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. And the only reason I ask, you know, is the AP literature test puts a poem in front of students mm-hmm. and asks them with almost no further instruction to do a close reading and construct an essay in less than an hour in which they make meaning and support their claims with evidence in fairly sophisticated ways. The, the drill and kill method or a PowerPoint presentation is just never going to prepare a student for that kind of a test. So thankfully, in some ways, even these tests themselves are asking for more creative and critical thought. But more importantly, I think, is that we don't even know what the world or the workforce will look like when students graduate. <laughs> Our society changes around us at such a rate that we need people who are wide awake And I think I would be concerned that district mandates and fairly constricting curricula have a tendency to teach students to be compliant rather than to question, you know. And I think that teachers really, truly don't have time to allow their students to fall asleep. We need people who are curious, who question, who can look around, make meaning, who are literate in media, who can tell the difference between fact and opinion and don't just take things as they're presented to them. That argument would have convinced me if I wasn't already convinced. So let's say that someone just heard that and they're like, okay, so how can I make tiny changes? Maybe once, Mm. 
once or twice a week, what can I utilize to be more creative and allow my students that freedom in the classroom? Are there any strategies that maybe you would pass along to a fellow English teacher? I think one of the biggest things that I would say that a teacher can try is to model curiosity and co-learning. So ask a question and don't tell them what to think and then <laughs> see what happens, right? And that's a risky thing, right? Your, your lesson can't depend on needing to get a particular answer, but leaving the space, really asking, right, a question and then following up with a what makes you say that and then they start to support it with evidence. And I think the modeling of a genuine interest in what they have to say that doesn't even require differentiating the content. You could be looking at the same paragraph that you would otherwise be looking at, and instead of giving them too strict of a frame, you know, find five symbols in this paragraph or something like that, you could pull out symbols and then ask them to make meaning of it and see what comes up. That would just require a different approach to the same material. And I think those kind of little steps could be really helpful. What about changing the order of the way a lesson might go? Right. So rather than giving away all of the context first in a, in a front-loading approach, what if you withhold some context? Students make choices about key elements that are in a piece before seeing the piece themselves and then hopefully building up the curiosity to wonder and explore context on their own. I would also say, you know, summarize that piece of advice by what if they do something before you tell them something? So if they're doing activities before they're given information and they, they arrive at some conclusions, even perhaps shabby conclusions that they later change their mind about before you get to the, um, you know, the formal teacher telling you things moment of the lesson. There's a great book called Rose, Where Did You Get That Red? Do you know that book? I do not know that book, no. Yeah, so there, there was this poet, Kenneth Koch, who in like the 60s and 70s, roughly the same time Lincoln Center Education was being founded, actually, and in a similar approach, would go around the city teaching poetry to kids. And oftentimes what he would do is he would take what he called poetry ideas out of great poems and have students play with poetry ideas before they saw what the big formal poet did with those same ideas. So for example, do you know that E.E. E. Cummings poem where he's, he's apologizing for eating plums out of his friend's refrigerator? Yeah, that, I do know that poem. What Coke would do is he would have students write an apology for something they're not sorry about. So, so he kind of gives away like a, an idea and people play around with it in very much of a playful way, but they're bringing themselves to that activity. And then they see how Cummings plays with it. And it, it becomes this kind of interaction where by the time they're actually reading the poem, they're ready to engage with it in a way um, that can lead them into a, a, a deeper sense of connectedness and that they can notice the piece more deeply themselves. I mean, that's that's outstanding. I, I wish that uh, lots of my fellow English teachers could even just hear that so they can make those quick changes. Um, because I know that those sorts of types of changes in my own practice has has been profound for me this year in having students become more curious about the content and allowing them a little room to play. I really think this is related to why so many students hate Shakespeare. <laughs> okay. Just hate it. I think a lot of teachers hate Shakespeare. I think a lot of teachers' teachers hated Shakespeare. I think it's difficult. 
teachers feel like they're supposed to understand it better than they do. And they, they go in there hoping to really get across what Shakespeare means from passage to passage. And if they could just play around with the language and some staging choices and really co-learn with their students, they would really see things in the text that they couldn't possibly have seen there because the student's coming in with a different perspective. And it could really lead to some much more engaging, non-hate-filled, exhausting Shakespeare lessons. Well, and it kind of goes back to what you were saying about the modeling of creativity and modeling the curiosity as being as interested in the work as you want your students to be. That's right. You know, so a a post-colonial reading of The Tempest is something no no English teacher could have thought about a hundred years ago. But at a certain point, someone who was enormously creative started applying a different lens to a very old text in in a fruitful way. Now, perhaps we've turned a corner where now that's almost the only way the play is read, you know, so maybe it'll swing back in some other directions. But students have to be able to make meaning and, and bring what what they know about the world to the text in some, some interesting ways. And I think that can lead, you know, to the essay that's surprising, right? To the to the piece that's not just telling us back the thing we told them. That learning by rote really doesn't make as much sense when we're talking about works of art. Right. And I uh I told my my students at the beginning of the year, I said my my goal at the end of the year is a is a promptless essay that we just read a book and you write an essay on whatever it is that interests you. And the look on their faces day one was complete and utter horror <laughs> and we've uh, we've been working hard this year to kind of break out of that mold and that's what I'm hoping we just we just finished Wuthering Heights I just threw a whole bunch of creationism versus evolution at them and oh, wow. we were playing a lot in that space and I said look this is this is just because this is what I'm curious about but I do not want you to write an essay on creationism and evolution if you do not have an understanding of creationism. We're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna have to attack this in your own way, and you know it's taken us a long time to get there to where the horror is a little more just trepidation now. Right. But, right. <laughs> but they're they're coming along with me, so it's all right. I mean, everything that you've said is so wonderful. I mean, is, are there ways that teachers can, you know, that you could suggest teachers who maybe like me only visit New York every once in a while and have only access very limited. I mean, what should the rest of the country do to maybe help see your vision a little bit? And we can end with that. Sure. Well, you know, I have to say I've done, I've taken on a related challenge to the one you were just talking about. And one thing I found incredibly helpful on that was what we call the capacities for imaginative thinking, Mm -hmm. which is something of of a learning framework that's come out of Lincoln Center Education. And three of those capacities are notice deeply, question and make connections. Another one of them is make meaning. But helping students to find ways in to pieces of literature or works of art or really any kind of challenging content, it's an enormously difficult and sophisticated thing to ask a student to do, particularly with a developing brain. But some of the scaffolds that I've seen work that are related to our study of works of art through aesthetic education is can we begin with just the facts? right? What do you notice? That's a question that doesn't have one answer, so it's fairly open, but it also levels the playing field for everyone who's asked that question. It's just a sense-based question. What are you noticing? 
And from there, can we start to build some of the raw materials that we can eventually get toward meaning with? So we're generating things that we can notice, right? If a student gets a, starts to look at a, a painting or a difficult poem, it would, it, I think in many ways they feel like they need to understand it quote-unquote understand it immediately and take it all in in all of its complexities and our view is very much that a work of art is inexhaustible in its possibility as a learning tool but a student can start to say what they notice and from there they can start to ask questions and notice more deeply as they ask questions and they can start to make connections and as they start to cycle through noticing questioning and connecting they can really get towards some meaning making I think as they go through that process, they can become more comfortable knowing what to do when they don't know what to do, right? Beyond that, I think the Lincoln Center Education website, there's some good information on there, including about the learning framework. We also host a a summer forum in July where artists, teaching artists, teachers, administrators from around the country and around the world come to Lincoln Center every year to learn about aesthetic education and how to take it back to their own practice. But more, more in the conceptual realm, I would say um, the writing of Maxine Green mm-hmm. on aesthetic education could really spark some, some very interesting reflection on what we're trying to accomplish as teachers. So I think some of those philosophical works could really be a, a, a helpful sort of touchstone. I would love to thank Daniel for such an enlightening and inspiring conversation. For more details on the work that Daniel is doing, you can visit Lincoln Center Education at lincolncentereducation.org and check out all of the opportunities. It's a fantastic, fantastic organization in the pursuit of artistic endeavors in our public schools. Just amazing. Next up, my interview with Ashita Patel. So my name is Ashita Patel and I'm a sophomore at Glenbard North High School. Can you talk to me a little bit? I know that you had a meeting yesterday with your guidance counselor and you're getting ready for your junior and senior years. What was that meeting about? And you just talked to me about the situation. So I like to consider myself like an academically driven student, but also creative. And I don't have a lot of slots in my schedule for anything really creative. I have a lot more academically based AP honors classes. And so the one class that I take is a band class. And that's probably like my one of my favorite classes out of the day because it's the part of the day that I can like kind of explore more of my creative aspect of things. And so I went into this meeting to try and figure out because I'm also a sports player. And so I have a waiver from marching band that allows me to skip out of gym so I can put in a class in. Because in our school, the way the system works is there are two elective slots, and I have a language and a band class. So that means I can't get my graduation requirements in, which is pretty restricting because I have to get those in order to graduate. So for this, I went in to see if I could, because I don't think I'll be able to balance a sport with all the clubs and activities that I do, so I might not play in the spring. So I was going in to see if I can let go of that waiver and somehow fit in a gym class and fit in all my classes. And since I don't have any semester courses, they're all full year courses, it's either like an all or none situation where I either take it and I have to play the sport or I don't and I don't take the class either. And I kind of have like a, like, so it depends, like that's the only class that I can take and I can't take one semester of that class either. So the one part of my day that I get to be a little bit more creative kind of like falls through the cracks a little bit. And so I don't know if I'm willing to give that up or not. And so that's what we were talking about. Do you think that you should have to choose? I mean, you're, you're an exceptionally high-performing academic student, um, which I never 
did that kind of work in high school. But I was involved in band. I was involved in, in sports and things of that nature. But I never felt that pull to have to choose either my artistic pursuits or my academic pursuits. Can you talk to me a bit about that frustration? Yeah, so I don't think I should have to choose between them because another program that I applied for was the AP Capstone program in the fall, and that's more of a research-based program, and the career field that I want to go into is more medicine and the research part of that. So if I drop that class, I can also fit in band, but I don't think I should have to choose between being creative and being like academically driven because I consider myself an academically driven student as well. And I don't think it should be a choice of you're either smart or you're creative. And I don't think that's the way that it should go. Well, especially because I find that oftentimes the kids that are the highest performing academics are the ones that are in band, that are in art, that are in those kind of creative pursuits. Well, yeah, like that's like kind of like the balance of the day. Like I know that student, there are students that take all academically driven classes across the board, but I feel like this is the one part of my day where I kind of get to be a little bit more me and I get to do what I want to do. And that kind of gives me like a little mental break. So when I get back to those academic classes, I kind of feel refreshed and have the energy to continue to be able to study as hard as I do or do all the things that I want to do as well. Speaking of those kind of creative pursuits, can you talk to me just about how you utilize maybe your creative you know, you talked about it being sort of a break, but do you see that there's places where that creativity allows you to be more successful in your academic classes? Well, yeah, like in this class too, we, a lot of the way we learn through analyzing plays and analyzing literature is through creative aspects. And that kind of opens your eyes to new possibilities because there's there are things that you can see with like a straight eye analysis, but if you think about what else is going on at the time and you kind of explore it from different angles, there's different things that you pick up on. I kind of feel like that's kind of applicable to every field. Like, I want to go into medicine, but I feel like medicine is also pretty creative as well. Like, you have to think about different things and think of it from different perspectives because one way might not cure everything that needs to be cured. And so I feel like creative creativity is applicable in any field, really. It just has to kind of be brought out a little bit more. And I kind of feel like my day lets me do that a little bit. So we've done a lot of things in this class. If you think back over the past year, is there anything that stood out to you that has helped you see literature in a new light? So I don't know if you remember the, you probably do, the one project that we did with the political cartoons. And then it was like a political cartoon and then you got an essay or like an article and then you cut out pieces of the article that you felt fit in with the political cartoon. I feel like that was really interesting. That was, we were... What were we reading at the time? Uh, we were reading um, We Should All Be Feminists. Okay, yeah. And then that was paired with um, Getting Us Ready for Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, so <clears throat> that was like four different things all put together. It was Taming of the Shrew, it was the article, it was the political cartoon, or so three different things. But it was a way to bring it all together in a new light. Like, I wouldn't have related that political cartoon to Taming of the Shrew and this other article without kind of having to do it all together at one time. And so by the time we got to reading Taming of the Shrew, we kind of had this outside knowledge of like this is what the world thinks and this is what taming of the shrew kind of shows us and how that relates and then you can also connect that to today's society and how it just opens up a lot more perspective to this novel instead of going in with like a one line i'm going to read it and i'm going to write an essay but it kind of lets you open it up and kind of bring it back to the real world and now and i think that interests a lot more it interests me and a lot of other students too instead of just saying this is a novel that we're going to read and we're going to write an essay on i'm going to forget about it it kind of help, like helps us learn about the world today too 
yeah, that applicable skill that that'll hopefully transfer not only from this class but to like your AP Euro class or an AP history class or whatever it is that you might be taking next um, and then getting you ready for those AP Lit and um, rhetorical skills that you'll need next year. Where do you think your passion for creativity or the arts, where do you, what do you think sparked that for you? Honestly, I'm not pretty, sh- I'm not really sure because in my family, like we're the traditional Asian family that academics go all the way, study, go to college, get a good job that's really well paying and that's like, that's kind of like what your life should be. And so at, like when I was younger, I never thought that creativity would really be my pursuit. But my grandma, actually, she really liked to draw. Like, she loves drawing. And so, like, after I got home from, like, kindergarten, I'd be like, can you draw me a picture? I want to color it. And so that's, like, kind of how it started. And then I got, and then in my culture, we celebrate a holiday called Navratri, which is a lot of, like, it's to celebrate God and, like, stuff like that. But my favorite part of that whole holiday was the dancing. So I don't, like, there's a whole, like, religious aspect to it, but I kind of just like to dance. And so by the time we got into high school, we have a club called ISA, which is the Indian Student Association, and every year we put on a whole show that's based on dancing. And so when I, I didn't really do much creative things in middle school. It was kind of like art club and like kind of like the traditional thing. But when I got here, I was given the opportunity by Mr. Erde, who runs the show, to captain a dance. And that kind of like, that pushed me into everything else. So I played band and that was kind of like all against my parents' will. Like they were like, nope, don't do that. And I kind of like pushed past their buttons a little bit. And I was like, I'm still gonna keep doing it. And so I still play now. But that like, that band and that together kind of like let me open up to a lot more different creative things as like my high school experience went on. And I'm only a sophomore, so there's probably still a lot more that I don't know yet. Speaking of that, have I mean, you've, you're you're two years in. You've had this high school experience for long enough to kind of inform your own views as to how you might want to see a school day approached. If you could, and I know that we have talked about this in the past, but if, if you could and you could rebuild your school day, what would your school day look like? So like, because considering for like my specific school day, I know I want to go into medicine, but that kind of is like, so like that's math and science based and I get that. But then there's like history and English courses, and English is really important to me too. It's like it's a way that you kind of get to see the world. It's through articles and literature that you kind of get to see how the rest of the world is doing outside of like the little bubble. But um, I don't, I think I would kind of forgo like a traditional history class because I get that that's important for like political aspects and stuff, but that's not the career field I want. I would want to go into. I think people should be able to structure their day depending on what they feel like they need and what they want to do. So I know someone going to pursue the arts really probably doesn't think they need to take a science class and learn about the human body, you know? So I feel like that's kind of where I'm going with that is like, I wouldn't want to take a history class and I'd probably put another science class or maybe something more creative. Just kind of let my day like flow a little bit differently than it does now with all the restrictions that kind of like society and the school system is placed. What about the length of the school day? I don't really enjoy waking up early because I um, I do do a lot of clubs and stuff, so sometimes I get home around like 6, 7 o'clock. There were days where I went from my sport to like a band concert, so I got home at like 10 o'clock, and I saw all my honors and AP homework, and yeah, I use my lunch, and I try to like sneak it in in other classes or passing periods or whatever, but there's still so much homework left. And so sometimes I just kind of like, I'll do it during this class, and it kind of like, gets in the way of that class and me getting my homework done. 
So maybe I feel like a lot of students would benefit from a not a shorter school day per se, but maybe a later start to a school day. Because I know a lot of us have to stay up really late. Like right now, there's a theater production going on. So all those kids are getting home at 10 o'clock and they're in the production. So they can't like get their homework done while the show is going on. And then they go and do their homework and it's like one or two o'clock and then they get up at six o'clock and you have to be at school by like seven. So I feel like a later school day would kind of help with that. And not like exactly a shorter school day, but I mean, like a later school day would be nice. How's your writing journey been this year? What sort of things have you learned or taken away from the different elements of the creative writing as well as the formal writing that we've done? So last year, writing was like pretty structured for us. It was like a system. And I know when we got into this class, like forgo that system and kind of just do what you want as long as it kind of fits, like it makes sense. And a lot of us like flipped. We were like, what are you talking about? Like, because we're so used to like a guided like structure, like you have... Um, you set it up, you put a quote in, and then you have three seconds to explain. And then you set it up and you put a quote in. And by the time we got to this or this essay now, you're like, just do whatever you want, kind of. And it, that was like, it was a little, like, scary, kind of. Because it's like, there's nothing to guide you. It's just you and your... It's like how the real world goes. Like, uh, scholars don't have, like, oh, you have to write a three-paragraph essay for because you read this. But they kind of write to write and to exp- like explore their ideas and kind of put their opinion out into the world. And that doesn't have to be in a set format. That doesn't have to be in a three-paragraph essay with two like pieces of evidence in between. And that's kind of what I learned, is that you can write a really academically strong essay without it having to be specifically formatted. And that was pretty interesting. Like I would never saw it from that perspective. I truly believe that you do not need a prompt to get good work out of kids. Um, You guys need the time to process. You need the support to be able to explore and to find your way through the dark. Because in college, that was the first time that I was ever allowed to do that kind of work. And it opened my eyes to what actual literary research was and what my writing could possibly be in the academic world. And it was groundbreaking for me. And I don't want you all to go through four years of high school without experiencing what what it really means to explore your own interests and your own inquiry through research and literature. So um, thank you. I know that you're a busy young lady. Uh, she had to get out of a class to come do this with me. But this is Ashita Patel, and she is going to do remarkable things. So thank you. Thank you. And that will wrap it up for this first podcast about the creative desert. Thank you so much to my guests, Ashita Patel and Daniel Wallace of Lincoln Center Education. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>